This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. In this episode, I am joined by John Tremble. John Tremble is an educator and organizer with the Azania chapter of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. John holds a master's degree from the Stanford University in Computer Science and from UC Berkeley in Operations Research, as well as a PhD in Systems Engineering from Georgia Tech. In 2015, John retired as an associate professor in Systems and Computer Science at Howard University. John is recently retired also as professor in industrial engineering at Swane University of Technology in Azania, that is South Africa. John, welcome to the Blossom of Thought for the chat today. Well, it's good to be here, even we... though it's uh, online. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, technology has made things so easy. We are far apart, separated by the Atlantic Ocean. But the subject for today arises out of an article that you wrote for the Hood Communist. It was published Thursday, May 12, 2022. The title of it is Imperialism was Built on Secular Colonialism. John, for starters, can you define for us these terms before we move forward? What is imperialism and what is secular colonialism? Uh, let, let me uh, start first with colonialism, which is what people you know, generally... Uh, have a more of a reference point to uh, in that uh, most of what uh, the capitalist world exercised from the you know 15th century on was colonialism where you know they sent a few adventurers out to to, to seize uh, land and particularly in Africa when we we speak of, of the liberation uh, of the different African states it was from this tradition of colonialism we know in 1957 for instance Ghana got its independence it's a lot of celebration but it was from a tradition of colonialism where the British uh, administered over uh, Ghana and and had you know office there some local administrators a, a few soldiers but they didn't have uh, a European population of any significance there. So in contrast to that, settler colonialism is what we saw happen in the Americas largely, uh, where uh, the Dutch and then the British and the French uh, set foot actually on the Atlantic coast first, and then sort of worked their way across uh, in a genocidal fashion, uh, killing off indigenous nations until they had a strong settler presence. And and what I try to point out in this article is the significance that settler colonialism had uh, in just the current situation that we see in the world today. And the reason it's important to unpack this and to point it out is that it's often overlooked by uh, the right and the left. Uh, you have the right that just sort of has this Hollywood version of uh, the taming of the West and this empty frontier that uh, colonizers, uh, settlers came to, whether they're talking about uh, Canada, the U.S., or Australia. Uh, and, it's, and it's a very uh, dishonest picture. But even to the left, you have people who are clamoring that uh, the main thing is to organize the workers in these particular states, and they pay little attention to the genocide that took place to actually create settler colonies uh, and that have now transformed themselves into a settler capitalism. Uh, because we know, for instance, that 
the dominant world power in this capitalist system today is the United States. But the United States was created in terms of this settler colonialism. And, and it gets more confusing to a lot of people because they say, well, uh, wait now, 1776, the U.S. got their independence. No, they were no longer these 13 colonies. Uh, what are you talking about, Prof. Timble? You know, but the reality is that what really happened was those initial colonies who broke from Britain in terms of a formal rule then became expansionist. And, it, and in fact, this created a climate where they could attract more settlers because they were no longer tied to Britain as its colonizing power. So what we saw in this expansion was in waves of, of British, Irish, French, uh, Scandinavian, uh, Italian, a wave of Germans that came, for instance, into Chicago in the, in the 19th century. And this is just ignored. It's acted as if it um, was normal. These were just poor migrants coming in looking for a better life. But no, this was settler colonialism at its finest stage in terms of this mass movement of Europeans that went into what they're calling a melting pot. But in fact, it is this migration uh, to places like what is now called the United States that in fact created whiteness. I mean, if you think about the hundreds of years of fighting going on in Europe uh, prior to this, there was the French fighting the British. It was the Spanish fighting the British, you know, and it was, they viewed themselves uh, along these national lines. But when they came to the United States and Canada, they became this melting pot of whiteness that opposed indigenous people and considered them to be uh, savages who came together to to operate a racist slave environment uh, up until 18. 65 here and in many places in America is not, they went on to 1888. So it was this kind of climate in which brought together these invading European settlers under the guise of whiteness uh, that created what's now white America. So this was, I think, the legacy that we had to look at in terms of settler colonialism. And it was a similar type of operation in Australia, New Zealand. And what we have to understand that the significance that these countries played in the advancement of capitalism. So that what happened, particularly after World War II, where Europe was devastated, the battleground was between Britain and to and the, and the then Soviet Union in terms of the devastation of millions of lives lost and the devastation in terms of industry. Now think the emerging countries after that that weren't uh, subject to this type of warfare was not only the United States but Canada and Australia. They represented significant land bases. I mean, Australia and Canada and the U.S. are in, all in the top uh, ten countries in terms of, of geographic size. I mean, all bigger than any of the European countries except for, for Russia. So that these countries were left intact in terms of their agriculture and industrial industry. And this is why you have them now sitting at the top of, of the heap in terms of a lot of what's going on. So what do we have in these countries that really were the result of settler colonialism? They're operating in a capitalist fashion. This is why in the paper I term this settler capitalism, because it's a distinct brand and, and commonality that exists 
that's different from the capitalism that first emerged in Karl Marx writes about in Capital uh, in terms of, of England. These were countries where they penalized and punished their working class, you know, forcing them off of, of the agricultural land into, uh, into coal mines uh, and into uh, factories with long hours. But it, this was done within the confines of the, their particular countries. And they used the resources that they gained from the exploitation uh, in a colonial fashion to build up those industries. But this was a distinctly different type of arrangement in terms of, sl- of, of wage slavery that dominated the populations there that was different from what we saw in what we're calling uh, settler capitalism, where they basically were getting their land free, stealing massive amounts of land uh, and having a population that uh, per land base was was much I mean, it was it wasn't near the density that you were experiencing in the European countries. And that's what you have today. Yeah. The question that I have when you are talking about this is how important it is what you are talking about, that it should form part of the political discourse today, since you are saying the left and the right are both ignoring this. But how critical is this forming part of the political discourse that is going on around and how does that have effect in the minds and the lives of the global south or the colonized people? Well, it's important in terms of us getting the accurate historical picture, first of all, because unfortunately, many well-meaning people in the left who, who downplay this, who just say, well, I'm concerned about the workers today uh, and the workers today in in the United States and Canada are predominantly the, this white population. <laughs> so so they, they are rallying around trying to organize them to to overthrow capitalism and, and saying that's the primary class struggle is primary. So therefore, this is the primary objective. And, and what they're ignoring is, um, is history, first of all. But what they're ignoring is the significance of of bringing a just solution to these environments so that you you have if you bring a just solution means you have to to look at the rights of the indigenous people in any of these lands you know and while it is widely popular now uh post apartheid to 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 raise this with regards to uh land uh reclamation in in southern africa it's even more it's more, even more widely ignored when it comes to looking at uh justice to the populations in the americas or australia which have have suffered immensely in a, in a genocidal fashion so we uh, have to struggle for justice and this does not mean that uh, we're we're not about organizing workers or we're somehow uh, saying that uh, all of the the white workers in Australia and Canada need to get back on a boat like they did in Algeria <laughs> and go go back to Europe, but it, the the key thing is is that we're about justice and we're about uh, the indigenous people having the rights to their land and that we're forcing this issue with all uh, all organizations and individuals that consider themselves to be about justice and all that consider themselves to be about socialism or communism because socialists and communist parties claim they're about justice and about equal rights so you know you can't just make that claim and somehow want to separate out this history and just say well my current reality is that the indigenous population in the united states is less than one percent so you know what let's not talk about it 
I will also be interested in hearing more of the intricacies of the effects of settler colonialism on uh, indigenous communities or amongst indigenous people. We've got Aborigines in, in, in Australia. You've got Azania, which is South Africa, famously known. And I think the brutality still continues today. You've got in the Americas uh, established on slavery, uh, particularly North America, even South America, and going to the Caribbean and all the various um, uh, unfortunate events that have happened on people, so-called people of color, uh, uh, people that are taken to be half human to be to some degree. I just want you to delve a little bit more on effects of these uh, uh, secular uh, colonialism on the indigenous people. Well, the you know the earliest effects which were experienced significantly in North America was the genocide. I mean, the, the, the arriving of colonists mainly on uh, the East Coast and then to lesser extent on, on the West Coast of, of, the, of North America and then sort of moving in was, was genocidal, not only in terms of, of just the warfare that, that killed off people, but uh, the, the disease that killed off, uh, off people. Uh, because basically the Americas were 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 fairly populated. I mean, when uh, the, the initial settlers arrived, on, on, it wasn't like they had to trek in hundreds of miles before they saw people. There were people right there uh, at the at the ports where they arrived. You know, so this genocidal process that took place here, and it was a similar process in in Australia. Uh, Australia didn't have as uh, significant a population in terms of indigenous people as North America, but they, the, the settlers took the same approach of, of genocide in terms of just open warfare, uh, taking advantage of the fact that they had much more superior arms, and even the process that uh, took place in, in, the, in this environment uh, was was one of of armed violence, and one way you can look at it, for instance, in the United States, you look a map and see how many cities are named Fort Fort Lauderdale, Fort Wayne, Fort, and it's because this migration across the Americas was a violent migration. They set up forts that then emerged into cities around in, in areas that were really controlled by indigenous people, surrounded, and they basically those forts became the point of extending and conducting warfare against indigenous people. So this is something that we can see that the earmarks uh, or landmarks of, of, of this whole process by just looking at a map. Not only will we see Fort this, Fort that, Fort that across it, but you'll see many of the rivers and the mountains still have the indigenous names that were given that the settlers realized, okay, we, we've killed off these people here, but what did they tell us this mountain was called? Or what did they tell us this river was called? Or this this area? So this is why they have, have these names that are in many of the current states in the U.S. Are, are have, have indigenous names. Illinois, Ohio, these are all, you know, Indiana, all names that were, were based on the indigenous areas. So this is something that, that that we have to see in terms of the impact. Now, a serious impact has been the, the legacy of, of, of racism against indigenous population and the devastation of, of, of hopelessness that was created amongst indigenous population that has, has created, whether it's Australia uh, or whether it's Xenia, or whether it's uh, there in the Americas that has created a, a higher 
suicide rate, a higher alcoholism in these areas? Has it been a, 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 because of the psychological impacts of the devastation of this genocidal process? And uh, people wonder, why, why is it higher crime or higher alcoholism or lower literacy rates in some of these areas? It's the devastation of the genocidal process of, of settler uh, colonialism that came in uh, promoting white supremacy and still promotes it today. Yeah, it's quite interesting that when you have discussions of this nature, people want to talk about the symptoms. We want to talk about, like what you are saying, they're saying, oh, this kind of group, or this, uh, this, these Africans, or these uh, uh, Native Americans, so to speak, uh, the red men, oh, they are so much into alcohol, drugs, and all stuff like that. They want to just be critical about the symptoms. They are not doing what you are doing. Hardly do we find a discussion that traces back all the trauma that is a result of the genocide and the various effects uh, that these had, these causes uh, have had on the people. It's, it's just fascinating. And I, I don't know if you have some thoughts, why is it that people always want to go to the symptoms instead of uh, the root of the problem? Is it convenient? Is it ignorance? Or some other people may be intent in just making sure that they only want to be critical about uh, the effects of uh, such uh, a genocide uh, or on, on I think indigenous people. Yeah, go ahead. It's all of those. I mean, uh, it's, it's certainly ignorance it's, and it's certainly convenience. And it's certainly also a level of a conscious effort because uh, the capitalist forces want to maintain power. So they can't come up and, and say, well, you know, the reason we have this power and this wealth is that we uh, we did everything we could to commit genocide against indigenous people. We have a few of them left on these reservations. We're not going to kill them. We'll just keep them on the reservation uh, now. And, and, and by the way, we did the same thing in Canada and Australia. And that's why, you know, uh, our, our kit and kin uh, are in this wealthy position that we have and we you know we let in other new people now like elon musk and <laughs> and and uh trump's wife from europe uh to be part of this so you know uh this is this is it's fine for us so they it, they project this as if this is normal and then they also provide a media scenario that emphasizes the the other things like uh, a high alcoholism rate or uh, the so-called black-on-black crime, and do, does not want to uh, really look at the total picture because it's not to their interest. So in, in the fact that they control the media and they control uh, the textbooks, they control the education, that they then have uh, so many people in this state of confusion or ignorance about really what is happening. And this is why political education is, is so important, a revolutionary political education program, such as what we're, and we in the All-African People's Revolutionary Party are, are, are doing with our work-study circle program. Because we realize that the problem, the reason we're in this situation is we're not organized effectively. And one of the reasons we're not organized effectively is this dominance of misinformation that has so many people confused. One of the other things that you talk about in the article, which I think it's, uh, it's, it's well written and it's, it's, it's very important, people hardly speak about the psychological warfare of uh, the capitalists or the colonizers mm-hmm. or imperialists. I want you to take us through the tactics that are being used today to maintain power, that is the imperialists maintaining 
their power or the the psychological warfare that is used to justify the theft of land and the genocide against in the indigenous people, the Africans, the, the, the Indian, and others of the global south? Well, one of the, the key things that they have always talked about is uh, that they, the settlers, uh, arrived and this was empty land. Because it was and it was empty, so therefore they had the right to it. Uh, and it's just it's just totally dishonest. Uh, and you know you see so many movies about it and steel shots where they're showing uh, where there's the vortrekkers in Southern Africa somehow, you know, trekking across in their wagons. Or if it's you know in the Western movies in the U.S. where they have these wagon trains that are trekking across. Uh, and they're picturing it like it's either empty land or it's some savage Indians trying to, you know, attack these innocent people who are just, you know, going along in this wagon train, you know, to across empty land uh, to make the life for themselves and 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 tame the West or to to. But in in reality, you know, they were all of these were quests that were very destructive. First of all, we know to the indigenous people but to the land itself. And now we see uh, that we're suffering even more of this in terms of, of the various uh, t- uh, natures in terms of environmental damage that has taken place and the climate change uh, that we're reckoning with is all because of this approach that settlers took uh, was what I call a conquest mentality. And even today, you know, this notion of, of a conquest mentality uh, is is taken as if it's positive, you know. We we're conquering, we're taming the West. Now we want to to Elon Musk is, wants to go to Mars. We're now talking about uh, these new trips to. We're going to go back to the moon, you know. This conquest, the, the whole race to the moon was about conquest. The whole uh, effort in terms of splitting the atom itself, you know. We we we're conquering the most minute particles with these. Ec- you know, massive billion-dollar uh, type of uh, accelerators that are set up to split material into these little tiny pieces. This is all part of this conquest mentality. The whole effort around extractionism, in terms of of going and and digging up minerals all over, is is part of this conquest mentality. I don't know, but if you know that, I think it's in Free State where one of the initial uh, gold mines. Uh, were and they basically uh, just dealt this massive pit, and now it's become a tourist attraction. They're claiming that this is the largest man-made hole in the world, you know. And and they built a fence around, it and they actually made a tourist site there. They're uh, bragging about this conquest. We dug the largest hole in the world, you know, as if that's something to be proud of, you know. But mm-hmm. it's this conquest mentality that's just run rampant. And it's advanced capitalism, you know, because you, you dig up all the gold, you it, you have this notion that, that people are supposed to race across uh, the continent looking for, for gold, whether it's in Australia or, I mean, the gold rush, for instance, mm-hmm. it took place in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Southern Africa. And it brought in these Europeans that were, were all revved up about this conquest. We're going to be rich. We're going to conquer this piece of land and find gold in it and become rich. So <laughs> this conquest mentality is an integral part of, of the settler colonial project. 
And it's an integral part of what has advanced capitalism over the years in terms of this extractionism of wealth, uh, this appeal to a large part of a European population primarily, that the way out of your poverty was to engage and be part of this this conquest. The interesting part is what we've touched on earlier on when you're talking about Hollywood and the filmmaking industry and the music industry, big media, and all those, uh, you know, it's interesting how much power these wield and how much power these have on the mind and then particularly creating a community of individualism, which what capitalism seems to do, or it's it's doing. I'm sure you have, you can have a lot to say about that. I'm I'm just taking you really a little bit back on the. I'm not trying to make you or suggest that you are a psychologist, but we've got enough experience that you can speak to this. The power of big media. Uh, somebody has spoken about how well, I think it's Malcolm X who spoke about the most powerful entity in the world is the media. So. Can you just go a little bit deeper on that, on the power of picture on the mind, and particularly when it comes through a movie where there are distortions, there are misrepresentations about real facts of history? Yes, the, the media, you know, is has um, has historically played this role at the early offsets of, of of capitalism, and even you know when there was still mercantile capitalism, and still even. Uh, uh, the last days of a feudalist system with, you know, before they cut off the head of the Queen of France and things like that. It, it, but then think about it. The media uh, was was just those who could read. And, uh, and then in the books, they portrayed a certain thing. And even at the early uh, offset of of, of, uh, of this settlerism, they made an appeal to people to come to places like Australia and America through a newspaper or through uh, letters that were written back. I mean, because that was the, the, the form of communication. It was before you had radio and TV. So now fast forward to where we are and just imagine just the intensity that exists now in terms of, uh, of the media. And also, even within the last uh, 20, 30 years, the, the the major multinationals have been reshaped. I mean, uh, back 40 years, 40, 50 years ago, uh, when in the 70s, I mean, the major multinationals were uh, the oil companies and the automobile companies. If you push further back, it was mainly the, the railroads, the steel, and the mining in- industry. Now, the mining industry plays an integral part because it's sort of the piece you, you know, you have to get your steel and your chrome and your platinum to make the the, the bigger the next line in terms of of everything from your refined metals and then your metals have to go into uh, whether it's the automobile or the jet plane or your 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 iPhone uh, so you have so that they, this still plays a role but now if you look at the major multinationals by capitalization in terms of uh, how much they're worth in terms of their stock, you're looking at now the Amazons and the Microsofts and the the Alphabet, which is Google. Uh, Yes, we're talking about uh, the significance of uh, the communication-related companies, which is basically ICT, information communication technology, uh, dominates now in terms of, of the bigger companies, whether you're talking about Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Google, and, and, and what you realize with this is they 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 have gone way beyond their initial um, 
boundaries. Uh, I mean, for instance, you have Apple TV. And it's not just TV. I mean, it's a whole movie industry. And similar, Amazon. Amazon has, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's online and, uh, movies. And, and they all have, I mean, you get your iPhone now and you punch in the news thing and it's, it's Apple news. Um, and, and, and similarly, you know, you, you have the YouTube that's, you know, owned by one of them and, and, and all of this is linked in. And I mean, you even have now where Facebook is talking about, well, now it's meta meta and because they want to have this metaverse and, and bring everybody into this, this media circus. Uh, so, this these are are become the the major i mean they're they are now the top, all in the top ten or twelve multinational corporations in the world so this speaks to the the significance of 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 how they've linked media I can, sorry, John, I can hardly hear you. I think there is some sound coming. You're touching any paper there. Oh, I'm sorry. I just was touching Yeah, somehow I forgot to mention earlier on because I've been hearing it throughout the tape. Yeah, you okay. can go ahead. Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, sorry, because I can't hear that from my side. I think it's because it may be closer to where the speaker is. It was picking up more. So, yeah. so there's this connection with the media. I mean, take in mind, for instance, that Beto's the owner of Amazon is also the owner of the Washington Post. So he's got the Washington Post linked into all of the, the Amazon feed. So if you have a Kindle, boom, you get, you know, the Washington Post. And, and all of this is, is insidious when you think about the fact that now you have this handful of, of wealthy people and, uh, and those that have bought off onto these companies that are part of this wealthy circuit that control so much of our, our information network. And today they've come to call it uh, surveillance capitalism. So they seem to be watching what we are doing and they're capitalizing on the data that they gather through these applications. And they can also be involved in social engineering, you know, trying to rewire our minds so that we may think in a certain way, behave in a certain way. And obviously that plays very well to the hands of the imperialists. Moving forward now, uh, let's have a particular focus on Africa, because in the article also there's a point where you narrow it down to settler colonial efforts in Africa. And uh, if you can just capture just a little bit of that history, uh, outlining the efforts of uh, of these colonialists in Africa from the Berlin Conference, 1884 through 1885. Uh, that, I think that's a good starting point because uh, the Berlin Conference was a, a unique juncture in terms of colonialism itself in that before the Berlin Conference, they were all fighting out, you know. The America's example is, you know, you had the Dutch come and they took part in New York and then the British fought them back and they they sold off parts of this and traded for some islands. And then the, the French had certain territories and they were at war, so they decided to to sell off part of this. And, in the, and even in Asia, you, know, you had the French and the British fighting, trying to seize certain territories. But in 1884-85, they sat down and they said, okay, let's, let's decide, let's divide this up. And they divided up all of Africa. And they, and they created more distinct pieces. And the divide and conquer had always been, you know, a strategy to advance uh, capitalism and colonialism. But they divided up, you know, over 50 pieces that... Uh, made it 
easier for them at that time and goes on to now under neocolonialism to be able to manage and to oppress because we're so divided. Unlike in the case of India, where, okay, the India subcontinent at its independent was basically divided into India and Pakistan, East and West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan and Bangladesh and India. But you, you have, you know, billion and a half people in India and over you know, 150 million people in both Pakistan and in Bangladesh. So the significant population pieces, uh, actually over 200 million, I think, in Pakistan now. So we have these significant population pockets versus what we find in Africa. But uh, after, as in an effort at this colonialism uh, stage, was certain distinct areas which they uh, highlighted in terms of, of advancing settlers. Uh, for the British, uh, that was Kenya uh, and Southern Africa. And we know Cecil Rhodes, you know, trekking and his, his vision of somehow connecting uh, 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 Cape to Cairo uh, as part of uh, the British Empire uh, failed. But he did, you know, manage to get all the way up to Malawi. And in that process, the idea was to set up these these settler bases. But the extent of is of that being able to set up settlers really just stopped with uh, what is now Zimbabwe and this is why uh, the settlers in uh, in that area were able to at a certain point sort of claim that they were independent and set up Rhodesia and in South Africa as white settler colonies similarly the French ventured across the Mediterranean and set up uh, their base in Algeria and annexed that to France. And what I point out is that many people weren't aware that up until the 60s, uh, the second largest European population in Africa was in Algeria because that was the intent of France. Of course, the Algerians uh, put up a a really significant battle that was able to uh, to not only defeat the French, but it, it created such uh, a hostile environment with them that they went in mass and went back in boats across to France. So people don't even realize that history of, of how that was intent to be a settler colony. But the significance of Africa in this picture of settler uh, colonialism is that it's in our hands to be uh, the first line of defeat for settler colonialism. We saw it in Algeria. We saw it in Kenya. We see the, 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 the midst of the battle, the being fought in Zimbabwe with land reclamation. And, and the next line certainly is occupied as Zania. And one of the campaigns that we're pushing hard is is the significance of this. And even around the whole notion of identity with regards to the naming of states. We saw where North Rhodesia, Zambia, South Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, Southwest Africa, Namibia. But now we see that we still have the Republic of South Africa, when in reality, we recognize it as a Zania. Because it's occupied, we haven't had the ability even to do that naming change. So this is one of the things that we're looking at, at the different Africanist forces campaigning around in terms of bringing that contradiction to the tension and forcing the hand of all of the players, uh, both the ruling party, the ANC, opposition parties, whether it's EFF or DA, to come to reckon with the Africanist forces like the PAC and ZAPO and APRP to say, deal with this. We're in occupied Azania. As a starter, we want this changed. Yeah, before we, we just go on uh, to that, probably that will be 
we will, I would like us to conclude and going into detail about the land issue in South Africa as part of, uh, as one of the examples of things that needs to be done still. For now, I would want us to backtrack a little bit and just talk about going back to the 60s, you were mentioning about the fierce battle in Algeria when the Africans revolutionized and were able to kick part of the, the, the French and you also made an example of Kenya. So it shows that in the 50s and 60s, there was a huge, in a sense, win for Africans. You know, they were able uh, to beat the colonizers. Or the, the colonizers didn't have so much of a political success in Africa. But the question is, people speak about neocolonialism. You might have had, you might have won against colonialism. But then after the 60s, after the independence, you see that there is a sudden sage of neocolonialism. Can you just speak about that on how we had transitioned from colonization, independence to neocolonialism? Well, uh, one of the reasons that neocolonialism or new colonialism has been able to be so effective is the fact that we're so divided. And if you even look at how that played out, okay, this year we fight in, and uh, Ghana gets its independence, and then that, you know another year maybe Guinea, and then you know it's kind of divided in, in, in terms of then they'll deal with other countries differently. But it's uh, several things that that we have to reckon with in terms of of how this new colonialism trans uh, or replaced the old colonialism. First, in the this period. In Africa, under colonialism in the 20th century, unlike earlier colonialism, you you had an advance of technology and you had the operation of imperialism so that uh, finance capital under imperialism was pumping money into putting infrastructure, for instance, so that you could have a a harbor in Ghana that would export cocoa and, and, and certain railroads that were put in place to to transport copper from certain areas in, in Zambia or, or the Congo. Uh, and you you had so you so so the monies were spent to uh, build up the infrastructure, to build up the extractive industries in particular uh, across Africa, or in some instances, build up the plantations. I mean Kenya was basically a, a plantation state. I mean it's one of the it's close to the equator. It's, it's has lush land and the and the temp and the moderate temperature all year. So the British saw this, wow, this is one giant place that we can just set up a massive amount of plantations from from tea to coffee to 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 fruit to flowers. And and that's what they did in terms of trying to operate in that manner. So uh under this operation of capitalism, it, it entrenched uh, these multinational corporations from mining to food industry, uh, food extraction, but it, all of it was basically extractive. And so you, so you can imagine you have all of this land, all of these resources under the ground that have been ripped out under colonialism. But the difference was that you had a single colonial power. You had the British controlling uh, the tea plantations in Kenya, or you had uh, the British control and the cocoa in um, in in Ghana, or uh, the the French controlling the uranium in somewhere in in in, in Central Africa, uh, Central African countries. So now under new under this new colonialism, it opened up the doors to all the multinationals. It opened up the doors 
uh, to finance being able to come from, from other countries. And at the same time, it gave the illusion of independence. So now it was okay uh, for many of these companies to, to get a green light to go and operate here uh, and, and be competitive. So it was this environment that is, is set in terms of the so-called uh, state of independence. But these new political power parties had to reckon with the fact that this infrastructure, these companies, these mining industries, these banks that are in place under colonialism. And it was very few they were willing to take the, the hard line. And when they did, they suffered. I mean, we saw the suffering in, in Guinea, yeah. you know, when the French just yanked everything out when the Guineans said, no, we'd rather have, you know, starve instead of, of operate under slavery uh, or in terms of the occupation. And they suffered immensely. Uh, and then na- and neighboring countries look at that and they see, oh, well, do I want to have to go through this? Example, many countries respect uh, Zimbabwe's position in terms of, of a, 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 the turn of the millennium, deciding on the land reclamation in terms of saying we're going to go in and we're going to take this land and, and give it to the people. But very few were able to take that same option because of the fear of retribution. Uh, they said if a country like Zimbabwe, which had a higher medium income, had higher literacy, had a diverse industry, could suffer like this, if they can deal with Zimbabwe like this, imagine what they would do to a Rwanda or a Zambia, which doesn't have the resources and doesn't have the educated population and doesn't have you know, a, a strong uh, political party that, that uh, fought a, a liberation war like in the case of, of Zimbabwe, you know, so so these countries look at that and they say, uh, I know I respect this, but, you know, this is the world. We're dominated by these multinationals. We're dominated by these major uh, company countries that are operating uh, in this the imperialism in this manner. And we have to, you know, walk softly. If this is why it's so important for political education. It's so important for us to organize on a global scale because it's going to take that organizing from the bottom up and linking together a significant force that can wake up the masses, can bring out these contradictions because it's not going to be on the elected leadership at this time in any of these states. So I think that's what Kwame Nkrumah even had the vision of that it's not liberation is not going to come from top down. It has to come from bottom up. I think a lot of the revolutionaries, even Malcolm X, will speak about bottoms up. I think that's, uh, uh, to some great degree, the solution. You keep on talking about solutions to this, which is something that I left for the, for the last part of our discussion, but I cannot help take you just right there, right now, that we talk about the solution to neocolonialism, capitalism, which has been brutal, imperialism. In Africa, we see that we are mentioning some of the sabotage or the various examples that have been <laughs> shown by the Europeans uh, to any who are aspiring to kick them out and establish a, a new political system, a new economic system, and uh, reorganize really such that there is a real independence, real self-determination. Can you just take us a little bit deeper into these solutions to try and deal with these sanctions that are going all over the the world? We've got in the Caribbean or in the, in the North America, you've got examples such as Venezuela where they are, you know, strangulated by sanctions. We've got 60 years in Cuba 
we've got Zimbabwe here and other states that are suffering from that. So there are various ways of sabotage. How do we use this political education that you, you keep speaking about and organizing? And what are these and how can we go about them successfully to be able to deal with this uh, sabotage, with these problems of imperialism and capitalism? Well, you know, it starts with political education uh, so that more people are conscious of these contradictions that are being imposed on us by capitalism and neocolonialism. And not only understand it, uh, but under, historically, but how it's currently playing out and are, are able to uh, articulate these contradictions and rally people uh, in terms of, of organizing them because it's, it's, it's going to take organization. And we realize that it's going to take uh, global organization. And for us as Africans, it's going to take us organizing Africans uh, into political formation that's focusing on the unification of Africa's liberation, because we realize it's under neocolonialism, so it's not liberated. And, but it's going to be its liberation, its unification, and it's further developed under scientific socialism as opposed to capitalism, a system where people uh, contribute uh, based on their ability to receive or on their contribution, a system where the profits from all of these operations, whether it's the extraction of materials out of the ground, or whether it's the growing of crop, whether it's the processing of these materials and the processing of food, that all of the profits go back to the people and are used to lift up humanity instead of being a profit for those that control industry and the finance system. So uh, this, this is the type of long range uh, that is necessary but in the short range, when we see these, like you mentioned, the sanctions, that is, it's important for us to rally around and oppose the sanctions, for instance, now that we see in Venezuela or Cuba or, or Zimbabwe, and their efforts to bring these forces together. Uh, they have the uh, national network on, on, on Cuba that's organized, for instance, even there in North America to, to meet and expose this and, and have programs around this and to rally people around the support for Cuba. As Pan-Africanists, we need to, to, to rally more around this whole uh, point of land reclamation uh, that exists now in Zimbabwe, but it has to extend and occupy the Zania. Uh, and this will, will make a big dent in, in terms of what is going on in terms of neocolonialism. But it, it, it takes us organizing, uh, whether it's uh, organizing as the APRP or coming together in different forces, the different forces like Swalimu or Zapo or the PAC of Azania, all coming together and working together uh, for this common goal of pan-Africanism. I, I see that in your analysis, you are speaking about what should be, what should be done. Uh, I just want you, in, in conclusion, to speak about what the success of this Pan-Africanist movement or project, because I think somebody who's listening here may look at, uh, maybe let me put it this way, you know, I've spoken to friends in Azania, South Africa, and you see that they are devastated, they have given up, they don't have any iota of courage that the Africans can reclaim what is theirs as far as land is concerned and the resources. They feel like we are colonized people and that's it. We're just waiting for some rounding up scene on earth and maybe the Lord coming and that would be it. Otherwise, there's 
there's no success in this. How can we inspire courage within the, the various schools? I think the majority, there are people who have just surrendered to this. And I don't think that's the right approach to surrender to slavery of, of this nature, uh, strangulation. We, it's, it's not by chance that in our communities, in our countries, we have got 70% of unemployment and people are suffering with disease and that and stuff like that. We, we cannot be content and say this is our fate. So what kind of organization that is happening around the world that is showing that we are really moving? People of the global south are tired of this and they are really doing great work. What's the success story there? Well, we have, we've had our successes at, at different points and uh, different junctures from, from the independence of Ghana to the end of apartheid. Uh, and I think what, what we didn't reckon with was the extensive nature of neocolonialism. But even the land reclamation process that was initiated in Zimbabwe was a success. And this is why you have uh, imperialism so, you know, hard on it, so, you know, bent on trying to, to, to push it back. Venezuela was a victory. Cuba was a victory in 1959. That's why you have people trying to fight this back. Bolivia was a big a victory. That's why you had the attempted coup and and for a minute there, you know, the reactionary forces in power, but the people fought back. So we mm. see all these victories. I see now, for instance, the struggle going on in Swaziland with the different forces for you know forming and extending uh across you know their their reach in terms of Africa and calling on support uh as victories. Even, you know, in our African Liberation Day, we had a speaker from the uh a Sudanese uh, People's Liberation Movement North, and he was speaking of the liberated zones in, in Sudan that they n- are now operating, where they've actually physically liberated areas where millions of people are living, and they're operating their own educational system, their own agricultural system there, and they're looking at expanding this area in terms of the struggle there. So we have we have our, our victories, but these are victories that you're not going to read uh, about in the Washington Post. You're not going to see on CNN or Fox. And this is part of, of, of the media strategy of capitalism. They're not going to let you know uh, the victories. I think the significant victory that it, we, we have to play up more uh, that really is unfold, unfolding now is the work we're doing in terms of setting up political education work study circles, uh, which you're part of that is extending now uh, across the world, that's allowing us to to link up uh, young Africans that want to know what's going on, want to understand their history, want to understand uh, what's going on today and what must be done. As we expand this and we build on the fact that we've been doing this for over 45 years and getting better at it every year and connecting more people with this network and we're able to take advantage of this connectivity that we have here, that this will grow us. This will grow us as the Pan-African movement. This will grow us as the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. This will grow us as Swalimo. And this will connect us. This will connect us with uh, revolutionary forces across Africa and Africans in the diaspora. It will connect us with revolutionary forces of people struggling for indigenous rights from Venezuela to Australia to Bolivia. And I think this will make a change. And we have to see that this is unfolding and to be inspired by it and be able to convince more people to join us. And I think this is really the task we have, particularly at this stage, because we're at a stage of organizing a revolutionary African intelligentsia. 
that will be able to reach out to the broader masses, and mm-hmm. we can do it. We can win. Oh yeah, yeah. I know from participating a little bit here and there, the the, the victories in, in in West Africa that the ARPRP is involved in in East Africa in Kenya, there are socialist movement there in southern part of Africa, in various places of Africa, and even I understand the ARPRP is working broadly going to the Caribbean and South America, North America. And I think, I don't know how much in Asia, in Europe, there are chapters there, uh, all galvanizing the people. Maybe by way of conclusion and real conclusion for sure, how does culture play into this for the Pan-Africanist movement? How important is it uh, that we re we unearth culture of the African people? How does it contribute to the success story of uh, African liberation? Well, culture has always been a relevant, uh, a very uh, relevant, important aspect of of any revolutionary struggle, uh, because it's 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 a uh, mechanism in which we express ourselves. Uh, it's it's a mechanism which we sort of have our uniqueness. Uh, it, it it embraces the African personality, and one of the things in the All African People's Revolutionary Party is we understand that our culture has its base in traditional Africa and indigenous nature uh, that, that we've experienced with, with our, 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 our hundreds and hundreds of languages and our, our, our expressions that, uh, that exist across Africa and that it has also been impacted by our, our Islamic uh, influence, our Euro-Christian influence. And we take this to be the broadness of our culture. And we take it that that we have this extensive culture that has its different expressions when we look at an Ethiopia from, from what we see in, in uh, a Nigeria or what we see in Algeria or what we see in a Zambia, but it's all Africa. We see this certain similarities and certain differences, whether you're in the Caribbean or whether you are in New York City. Uh, but we take this on as the broadness, the expansiveness, the beauty of the dynamism of and the wealth of, of African culture. And we see by embracing this as, 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 as deep and significant as it is, that this should be inspiring to us. It should be such that we can go and experience different aspects of our African culture and say, this is us. I didn't know this part. I didn't know how uh, Ethiopians did this. I didn't know uh, how... Uh, certain ways that people did make cloth or or certain uh, dishes that they made in certain places. But if we embrace this all as our culture, it come we come to see that we have this broader experience than any people can imagine. So we turn our oppression into a weapon. Mm-hmm. And this is what culture is, because culture is our fight against oppression, our fight against the natural and, and man-made elements that allow us to create everything from the artistic forms to the musical expression, to the food that we eat, to the way that we fight. And we have to embrace all of this. And when we do that, we see the richness of our culture and it inspires us to fight harder to end the oppression that we're under. Well put, John. Thank you so much for such analysis. We've been speaking with John Tremble. We were speaking about imperialism was built on secular colonialism. Thank you so much, John, for coming through. And hopefully you will be very willing to come back and talk about other matters because people like you have all the wealth of experience and organizing for many decades, uh, you know, for the All African 
People's Revolutionary Party, and uh, also in, in other aspects of a, a political organization in South Africa. Thank you so much for coming through. It's been my pleasure, and have a, have a good day. Thank you. Okay. Bye.